Chapter twenty nine of Thou Art the Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Thou Art the Man by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter twenty nine The Furies on the Hearth. Fatal Accident to the Earl of Penrith. That was the sentence, in large capitals upon a newspaper board, which caught Sibyl's eye as she drove through Keswick on her way to the railway station. Absorbed in thought, her eyes looked at street and shop windows and people seeing things but not noticing them. Her husband's name startled her from that profound reverie, that sad comparison of past and present. Fatal accident. What accident? and the word fatal. What did that mean? She called to the coachman to stop, but he had hardly pulled up his horses when she let herself out of the carriage and rushed into the shop. The newspaper, she asked, holding out a trembling hand, the paper with the account of the accident. The somewhat sleepy shopkeeper, roused from a droning conversation with the fellow townsmen wondered at this unknown lady's pallor and agitation he stared at her as he handed her the newspaper and made no remonstrance when she left the shop without paying for it queer he remarked as he went on serving stationery to the customer whose business and conversation had been interrupted that must be somebody connected with lord penrith I shouldn't wonder if it was his wife. The carriage had not moved on yet. Lady Penrith was sitting where the two men could watch her as she tore open the paper, looking hurriedly up and down the columns till she came to what she wanted. Fatal accident. What did that word fatal mean? A limb shattered, the loss of an eye, some irreparable injury which would make life less fair to the sufferer or must that word signify something worse than lameness or blindness had the word but one significance must it mean the end of all things how long it seemed before she found the column she wanted in the eight pages of that flimsy local paper at last here it was headed in large type at the top of a column. We regret to report the death of the Earl of Penrith, who was shot yesterday while trying to pass through a gap in a hedge in his own estate, a short distance from Calander Castle. It is supposed that the trigger of the gun was caught by a twig in the quick-set hedge, and that his lordship's injuries were immediately fatal. He had been dead some time when he was found lying in the gap with his gun near him. The earl was in the prime of life, having been born, etc., etc., etc. Drive on to the station as fast as you can go. Stop. The man must be paid for his paper, said Sybil, handing her purse to Ferriby, who had alighted from the carriage and was standing at the door watching her mistress's agitated countenance. 
there is no hurry the train will not start any sooner because i am anxious to be at home we shall have a long time to wait that delay seemed eternal to lady penrith sitting in the waiting-room at first in solitude and silence then amidst the bustle of fidgety travellers coming in and going out dead the husband with whom she had sat at breakfast yesterday morning in that formal intercourse which seemed to the outside world more like an armed neutrality than a happy marriage they had always been polite to each other they had never frustrated each other's wishes in large things or in small each had enjoyed perfect liberty to take life as pleasantly as possible but each had known and had not even affected not to know that love went for nothing in their union penrith had kept the promise of his courtship he had been according to his lights a good husband dead could it be true was not that paragraph written in error on the first hasty report of the disaster the extent of the calamity exaggerated by outsiders in the confusion of the household well she would know all in a few hours it had never occurred to her in agitation that she might have telegraphed to the castle and received a reply to her questions halfway on her journey but during the last five minutes of waiting Ferriby reminded her that it would be necessary to telegraph to the stables for her carriage to meet her at the station, and Ferriby ran to the office with a hastily written message. The inquest had been held at noon, and all was tranquil at the castle when Sibyl arrived. Silence and gloom prevailed in the darkened house, a silence and darkness as of the grave where Lord Penrith was to lie before many days and nights were over. There had been very little trouble for coroner or jury, very little room for question or conjecture, nothing mysterious in the accident they are required to investigate, no room for difference of opinion. The gun lay on the table before them. It was passed from hand to hand by and by, and those who handled it were more impressed by the beauty of the weapon than by any need of considering how it had happened to be fatal to its possessor the catastrophe was so commonplace so common a repetition of old experiences and pointed only to the familiar moral that it is better for a man to lose a few seconds in reloading his gun even if he miss a bird by that brief delay than to risk carrying a loaded gun over rough ground in a long tramp homeward lord penrith had saved himself a little trouble and had thrown away his life that is how the coroner and the jury read the story of his death a sad pity a man still in the prime of life hard as nails a fine shot a splendid horseman and in the enjoyment of an estate which it had been the business of her ladyship's life to bring to perfection he had died childless that was the worst of it and his title and estate would pass to hubert urquhart a man of the worst possible reputation gambler 
blackleg, profligate, a man who, at the age of when a son of a local magnate is generally liked and looked up to in the neighborhood of his father's house, had been hated and despised, a youth who had always preferred bad company to good, who had taken his pleasure grossly at rustic race meetings and village fairs, a man who, while consorting with jockeys and small horse dealers, had shown no more respect for his humbler neighbors than if he had been at Unyanyembi or Ujiji. Never had a young patrician been more heartily disliked than Hubert Arkhart in Cumberland. He had not even the good qualities that should have gone with his defects. He had affected low company, without ever achieving popularity, even in the saddle-room or at the village inn. There had been a hardness about him, the Urquhart hardness, which gave a sting to his jests and made his familiarity with inferiors brutal instead of friendly. He had cultivated the company of grooms and horse-dealers because they amused him, but he had never disguised his absolute contempt for them as a lower order of creatures. Mr. Urquhart appeared on the scene an hour after Lady Penrith's return. He had come post-haste from Perth, where he had spent the previous night on his way to the Highlands, and where he had seen the news of his brother's death in the morning papers. He had sent his card to his sister-in-law, begging her to see him, to which request she replied in a letter of three lines. No, not to-day. Three or four days hence I will see you. I have something to say about the past, and your part in it. The funeral was over. All the late earl's tenantry, and all there was of gentle blood within twenty miles of the castle, had been represented in the long line of mourning carriages that had followed the open hearse where the earl's coronet on the crimson valid pall was touched with gleams of wintry sunlight as the cortege moved slowly along the moorland road crimson and gold made a splendor in the cold gray nave of the church at cargill where for many generations the urquharts had been buried in a vault underneath the chancel that subterranean burial place had been closed for the last forty years and sibyl's husband was to lie in his father's grave in the little cemetery on the hillside at the end of the village street hubert urquhart was the chief mourner and returned to the castle to hear the reading of the will a business promptly dispatched for the will was of the briefest the late earl had only his surplus income to dispose of and his bequests were limited to a legacy of a thousand pounds to his niece coralie urquhart a hundred pounds each to his valet and coachman and fifty pounds to every servant who had been five years in his service his personal effects books pictures plate and jewelry not heirlooms he left without exception to his wife to his brother and heir presumptive he bequeathed 
not so much as a snuff-box or a walking-stick. Hubert Urquhart stood with his back to the fire, listening to these details in a gloomy silence. He made no remark when the lawyer finished, and he looked at him doubtfully, waiting his lordship's instructions. "'Thank you, Grant,' he said at last, as if waking from a reverie. "'The will is eminently discreet.' My brother had very little to leave except those things as were brought with his wife's money. It is right those things should revert to her. Go to your luncheon, Grant. I shall smoke my cigar quietly here. I seldom eat at this time of day. But your lordship has had an exhausting morning. Wouldn't it be better to eat a heavy meal? No, my dear fellow but you can tell a servant to bring me a brandy and soda. Good day to you, if we don't meet again. This was a shrewd indication of his lordship's desire that they should not meet again. The solicitor put the will in his pocket and left the room without another word. There was a new stateliness about his client, whose affairs had compelled occasional resort to him in the past, and who had been a good deal more f familiar in those impecunious days. The new earl is putting on side, mused Mr. Grant. But he'll soon be coming to me to settle with his creditors. They'll want twenty shillings to the pound now, and he won't want to give them as much. I wish I'd brought up a little of his lordship's paper. Might have been dirt cheap last week. The new Lord Penrith smoked his cigar by the library fire, sitting in a low armchair, in a restful attitude, his long legs stretched straight before him, his hands thrust deep into his pockets, his head bent a little. Every now and then his eyes glanced upward with a curious look at the spacious room and the walls of books which nobody ever read. The late earl's writing-table stood in front of the great Tudor window, with the seals upon all the drawers, and all the scattered litter of life cleared away from the top, leaving the blank emptiness of death. It was something to be master in such a house as this, and the house near Berkeley Square, the house whose doors had been shut against him for the last ten years, just as an inexorably as the door of this Cumbrian fortress. No more shutting of the doors against him, Hubert Urquhart. No more empty pockets and importunate Jews threatening every hurtful process that was left in the law of debtor and creditor. His troubles were over. He could stretch his legs by the fireside, smoke the best cigars that tropical Spain could produce, take his ease. The days of difficulty were done. You hadn't done me a single kindness in your ten years of prosperity, he said, apostrophizing his brother's portrait, which looked down at him from the panel above the mantelpiece. You had a good inning, and an easy death. Do you expect me to be sorry for you, I wonder? if there be consciousness or knowledge in the place where you are. The door opened, and the butler ushered in Lady Penrith, 
Urquhart dropped his cigar in the fender and started to his feet. He had courted this interview, but it was not the less a shock when the moment came. He faltered something confusedly and drew a chair to the hearth. "'I am not going to sit down,' Sibyl said icily. "'I told you I wanted to see you after the funeral. "'This is your house now. "'My carriage is at the door, "'and as soon as I have said what I have to say, "'I shall leave the castle forever.' "'My dear Lady Penrith, "'I hope you understand that this house "'and any other house which I possess "'is laid at your feet. "'Pray,' spare yourself the trouble of making fine speeches she answered with a look which should have blighted him you know very well that nothing would induce me to enter any house that sheltered you unless i came there to denounce you as i might denounce you as i would had i not some regard for the name you bear as i would denounce you even at the sacrifice of that name if my faith in God's justice were not stronger than my faith in a British jury. The ghastly change in the brazen audacity of his face told her that he was hard hit. He gnawed his nether lip for a few moments in silence, looking up at her from under bent brows with eyes that would have killed her if hatred could kill. What do you mean? he muttered huskily after a pause. I mean that you are twice a murderer. He sprang forward a step or two, his arm lifted and fist clenched. It cost him no small effort of will and muscle not to bring that clenched fist down upon the fair pale face like a sledgehammer. He knew that one such blow would kill her, and he would have liked to kill her. He longed to see her dead at his feet. I am not afraid of your violence. You could do me no more harm than you have done if you were to kill me. You spoilt my life. You took all the hope and love and gladness out of my happy girlhood, so happy till you blighted it. You murdered my adopted sister, and broke my father's heart i murdered her great god hear what this woman says i believe there is a god who hears and will punish your crimes it costs you nothing nothing to call upon a god in which you do not believe i say that it was your hand which killed marie arnold it was you who wanted to marry her wanted money with her and tried to make a bargain with my father, and had been refused, and, goaded by her contempt for you, that devil of rage and cruelty which has always looked out of your cold, cruel eyes, took possession of you, and you murdered her. And then, when fate brought Brandon Mountford to the spot, and circumstantial evidence pointed to him as the murderer, it was your interest to confirm that suspicion by every means in your power best of all by getting him out of the way and making him a fugitive, a prison-breaker. 
and to do this you worked upon my feelings you took advantage of my love for him my ignorance of life and its responsibilities you made me the instrument of his destruction and then came your second murder the merciless imprisonment of a man for whom of all men a free existence under god's sky meant health and life you made his days and nights a dreary blank his world a prison of four walls and half an acre of gloomy garden if there was ever a murder done on earth that was murder oh you call that murder do you lady penrith said urquhart with a saturnine grin i saved a homicidal lunatic from the gallows or the criminal ward in a state asylum i put him quietly out of sight where he was taken excellent care by an educated gentleman and his wife and you call that murder i say that it was a viler crime than even your murder of marie arnold that may have been the work of a moment's fury an ungovernable impulse of a man's wickedness but the slow torture of years the living death which you the murderer inflicted upon an innocent man a man who was taken red-handed by the side of his victim my dear lady penrith raving such as this can admit of no reply no sane man would take the trouble to argue with you he turned his back upon her as he bent down to draw the smouldering logs together beads of sweat had been standing on his forehead for a few minutes ago but he was calm and self-possessed now and his hard sharply cut face wore its old look of effrontery i am informed that your friend has been removed from the quiet retreat in the mountain air and amidst fine scenery where i placed him when it was considered that a change might be useful a change after ten years of dismal monotony a change after mind and memory have been blotted out in that dreary solitude lady penrith you are not a doctor and i am not here to discuss mr mountford's case with you if you want to let the light on his history mental or otherwise you had better let the warrant be executed which was issued against him ten years ago as a suspected murderer if you believe in his innocence you have taken a very inconsistent course in spiriting him away to some hiding-place of your own selection i concealed his existence in his own interests and yours moreover the thing was done at your husband's instigation and with your husband's full approval had she been looking at him she would have seen the conception of that lie flash across his face as he began the last sentence penrith was dead and might be made responsible for everything god is very patient with you she said with a quivering lip but i can endure no more she turned from him 
and left the room, shutting the door behind her. His hands shook a good deal as he took out his cigar case. He failed to find it at first, though it was in the usual pocket, and lighted a consolatory cigar. "'That's what I call a very unpleasant quarter of an hour,' he muttered, "'and I thought it was going to be worse.'" End of chapter 29